It's Midday Magazine for Friday, July 7th. I'm Shelby Herbert. Petersburg's Catholic Church, St. Catherine of Siena, caught fire yesterday afternoon in a blaze that continued for nearly 10 hours. KFSK's Thomas Copeland has the story. Don Koenigs has attended St. Catherine's of Siena Catholic Church for over 40 years. He was one of just two parishioners at midday mass on Thursday. I saw smoke while I was inside from the skylight in the church. We were just ready to receive Holy Communion. I looked up and I saw smoke billowing up above. So I ran out of the church immediately and could see that the church was on fire. I ran in and told Father, we were called 911, and I said, you have to take Jesus out of the tabernacle. At 12.29 p.m., emergency dispatch received multiple calls as neighbors and passersby caught sight of the flames. Fire, EMS, search and rescue, and law enforcement were all on the scene within minutes. As the firefighters tackled the blaze, smoke billowed from St. Catherine's down into Petersburg. Police officers quickly cordoned off several blocks. Here's Sergeant Drew Eris. Smoke was heading in a southwesterly direction, so we evacuated everybody in the nearby houses here. And we also evacuated the uh, children's center over here because there was, there was actively children in the school center. At Petersburg Medical Center, CEO Phil Hofstetter saw the smoke as it blew down the hill to the clinic. It was, it was almost like it was porous. It went right through the building. And that meant scores of appointments were quickly cancelled. Well, we closed all our non-essential services right now, uh, and we sent staff home. We put in uh, some air scrubbers into the different units for uh, long-term care. Back at St. Catharines, crowds gathered as the church roof began to cave in, and its spire buckled under the heat of the flames. Bringing tears to my eyes earlier. Just shocked. I, I've never seen anything like this. Lived here 48 years, and... Uh, there's been fires in town, but this is pretty terrible. Sad for the community. Going to be tough on all the parishioners there and stuff. They're going to need a lot of community support. Among the onlookers stood Father Jose. This is his first year at St. Catharines. So heartbreaking. So heartbreaking. But we will survive, you know. That's our hope. And uh, I want to thank all the fire uh, department works. They are working hard to control this fire. As the first hour rolled on, more volunteers arrived on the scene. Some, like Taylor Norheim, even raced in from the water to fight the fire. I got here late even. I was out on the boat. I had to go cancel work for the day because if I, I don't know, if I didn't do it and nobody was doing it, somebody's got to do it. Yeah. I mean, the building's a loss. That really sucks. My parents were married in there a long time ago. The Petersburg Fire Department has to rely on volunteers, many with full-time jobs like Norheim. And Fire Department spokesperson Dave Berg said that means when a massive blaze like this occurs, the worst he's seen in a quarter century, they can find themselves with just a skeleton crew. We showed up with, with three engines. Uh, one engine came in with only a driver. It's capable of carrying six, you know, a, a crew of six. And uh, and another engine came in short, short-staffed short also. Do you so, think you could have saved more of the church if you had more volunteers? Oh, I think so, yeah. Our volunteer staff has been declining over the years. There's just, you know, people don't seem to be uh, as interested in, in either fire service or volunteering as a whole, which has really put a damper on um, what we can do as far as interior attack. And uh, so at some point you have to become defensive and, and go into a defensive mode, kind of like we're in right now. And Aaron Hankins, the director of fire and EMS, said in a race against time, fewer volunteers can have a massive impact. 
Would you have done this operation differently if you'd had more volunteers, Aaron? We might have been able to get up on the roof before the entire thing was compromised, but uh, by the time we got access and had enough volunteers to do it, you know, it was kind of not really safe to go on there. As the afternoon turned to evening, the flames died down, but refused to die out. Four-inch thick wooden beams, tightly layered on the roof of the sanctuary, blocked the hoses from extinguishing the flames smouldering underneath. And the attic of the fellowship was just as hard to reach. And so the chainsaws came out to carve up chunks of timber to allow for a way for the water to get in. So I think for this week... Across a car park in the Parks and Rec gymnasium, the St. Catherine's congregation gathered for communion, prayer and to plan for the days ahead. Father Jose was living at the back of the church before it burned down. And in a brief moment of levity, he told the parishioners he just brought home some groceries. I was about to cook today. I just brought some, some uh, pork. And I just, I served enough for, I think, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe roasted now with the fire. The congregation hopes to assemble for mass this weekend in the grotto next to the burnt out church. But they don't yet know what can be salvaged from inside. As the parishioners left the gymnasium, they stopped to watch the firefighters still battling the stubborn flames burning in the church roof. Dave Berg says the outlook for the building isn't good. Well, the sanctuary was spared. Uh, there's heavy smoke damage in there. But as far as the rectory is concerned, and uh, especially the, uh, the uh, fellowship hall and the kitchen area, uh, pretty much destroyed. Yeah, and I, I really think that all in all, we're probably going to have a total loss with the building. It was past 10pm when the final hose was turned off. Just one injury among the multi-agency army of Petersburg volunteers, a broken finger in the fire crew. The cause of the blaze will be investigated in the days and weeks to come by local and state fire marshals. But for now, St Catharines of Siena is reduced to a shell. In Petersburg, I'm Thomas Copeland. Alaskans in Southeast might want to slip off their extra tufts and find some shade this weekend. The National Weather Service has issued a special weather statement for heat in the region, and it comes just a few days after what scientists are unofficially calling the hottest day on record for the world. Edward Liskey is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service's Juno office, and he says people will be feeling the heat. He says to expect temperatures hovering around 80 degrees through Friday and into Saturday. And then a little bit cooler towards Saturday, probably mid-70s, and then we're going down, then we're cooling down as we get into uh, Sunday and Monday, but we're still going to be around 70 for those time periods. The southern southeast area and the inside channels will get the bulk of the heat through the weekend, but other communities will also see warmer weather than usual. Petersburg could see temperatures in the mid-70s to 80s, while Wrangell is expected to hover in the high 70s. Juneau is also expected to see temperatures stay in the mid to upper 70s. Sitka's forecast is a bit cooler, with temperatures in the upper 60s through the weekend. Liskey explained what's causing the hot conditions in the panhandle. We got a uh, ridge of high pressure just to our, uh, just to our west that's uh, keeping us with offshore flow. So that's why we have the clear of clouds and uh, sunny, sunny conditions. And that usually gives us the uh, warmer temperatures that we have during the uh, summertime months. Liskey offered some advice for staying cool this weekend. Drink lots of water and limit your outdoor exercise. 
if you if you're feeling hot, get feeling warm, get inside somewhere cool, get in the shade. Temperatures are supposed to dip back down next week. NOAA biologists are asking people to watch out for two humpback whales that were seen entangled in fishing gear near Juneau th- this Monday. One of the whales, a male named Manu, was reported tangled in a crab pot line on Fritz Cove on Monday morning. NOAA biologist Sadie Wright said the agency is tracking that whale. From the Coast Guard vessel, we were able to attach a satellite tag buoy to the entangling materials that were trailing this known whale. His nickname is Manu. If he um, uh, slows down or appears to be showing any signs of distress, and we can launch another response. Wright said the entanglement is life-threatening because it could prevent Manu the whale from eating. Manu was trailing two yellow buoys with a green buoy behind him. He was last tracked near Warm Springs Bay on Baranoth Island, but Wright expects he'll come back to the Juneau area. She said Noah would like any photos or information people may have on the whale. A second unidentified whale was reported entangled in gillnet gear in Taku Inlet just before noon on Monday. Wright said Noah is seeking any information on the whale if people see it. Stay at least 100 yards away from the whale for the whale's safety and for their own. Uh, Sometimes boat propellers can get snagged up in the entangling materials that whales are dragging behind them, and, and that just makes a bad situation worse. To reduce the chance of entanglements, Wrights recommends that people avoid using floating line. NOAA Fisheries asks that people report the sightings at 877-925-7773 or to the U.S. Coast Guard on VHF Channel 16. NOAA asks that anyone who spots one of the whales not take any hands-on response actions. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is testing out a new marine drone this summer to help survey fish populations in the waters off Alaska's coast. As Kirsten Dobrith reports from Kodiak, the agency says the new technology could transform the work it does, from stock assessments for fisheries to marine mapping. Alex Robertis is a biologist with NOAA Fisheries. He's standing in a big warehouse on Kodiak's Pier 2 next to Drix. That's the name of what is essentially an unmanned robotic boat NOAA plans to launch this summer. It's probably about two and a half feet wide total, about 24 feet long, and... Um, It's powered by a diesel engine. The Drix looks kind of like the top part of a bright red submarine just visible at the water's surface. There's a couple ways to control it, from the research vessel Oscar Dyson or remotely using Starlink satellite internet. DeRobertis says it's a big first for the agency and there's not much technology like it anywhere else. You know, five years ago you couldn't do this. Ten years ago this was science fiction. That's because although Drix is physically small, it has big potential for transforming the way researchers complete stock assessments for Alaska's fisheries. A pod under the vessel is equipped with sonar equipment that sends pulses of sound out into the water. The signals bounce back when they reach something. Think of it like a high-tech fish finder. Scientists can then combine that data with data from trawl surveys to get a better picture of the midwater column, where fish like pollock are typically found. DeRobertis says NOAA plans to use Drix for coastal mapping, too. So the basic idea here is that the ship and the robot are going to be side-by-side working in the same area. The robot is going to make 
half the acoustic measurements, and the ship is going to trawl where it sees fish and where the robot sees fish. Scientists have only tested out the Drix in Puget Sound. This summer is a big trial run, though. The Drix will be used in the Gulf of Alaska for the first time and in tandem with research teams completing midwater stock assessments aboard the Oscar Dyson. Researchers will compare the data to see how Drix performed. When Drix isn't in use, it will be stored on the deck of the Oscar Dyson. That's another big part of this summer's test run to see how feasible it is to actually use the marine drone in Alaska. How do we do this launch and recover it from a ship and, and sort of incorporate it in all, of our, in all of our operations? And really the only way to do that is to actually do it. If it all goes according to plan, Drix might end up being a regular part of the surveys in the future. In Kodiak, I'm Kirsten Dobrath. Last Saturday, hundreds of Unalaskans gathered to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Unalaska Corporation. OC formed in 1973 under the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act as a means to, to provide opportunity for the local indigenous community. The for-profit corporation is now the main landowner on the island. Chairman Vince Tudiakoff Sr. was part of the original board of directors and roughly 270 shareholders. He says their initial vision is alive and well. But I learned a lot from those elders that were that were part of the board at uh, first meetings that we had. We set our goal to uh, be the be a very strong village corporation in our region. I believe we're there, we're doing it, but we got to do a lot better. Tudiakoff says he feels especially grateful for the wisdom of elders Nick Peterson, Henry Swanson, and Anfisha Shapsnikov. He says they made the original land selections, which led to OC's success today. Land leasing profits provide the majority of OC's business and shares for today's nearly 500 shareholders and their descendants. While the corporation has seen significant growth in the last 50 years, Tudiakoff says it's important to share, encourage youth involvement. Saturday was the first time in four years community members gathered for the annual banquet. The corporation canceled the event during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Shareholders and friends visited over fish pie and prime rib as the Unalaska Unonga dancers gave their debut performance. It was their first time dancing since reestablishing their group earlier this year. As you saw today, there's a mixture of elder and youth in that dance group today. It shows that we, you know, we're instilling our language, our culture with the younger kids. And uh, just amazing, amazing to see it happen. During the annual meeting, OC announced its new board. Wendy Svarney Hawthorne and Michael Tudiakoff were re-elected, and 29-year-old Shayla Shashnikov is now the newest and youngest member of the board. Until their recent election, the average age of board directors was 65 years old. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert.